Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. Well, we are in a series called uh, Mega Transitions, and this is a series that is in 1 Samuel, based on 1 Samuel. And uh, I'm going to do two more messages on this before we get to Christmas, and then I'll have a Christmas message, of course, on December 22nd. Uh, And wanted to mention uh, that, as Jeremy already mentioned, if you're coming to uh, the one service on on December uh, 22nd, that's a candlelight service. It's at 10 o'clock. It's going to be a great service. It'll be packed. You want to come early, uh, and it's going to be really great, and I'll have a Christmas message. We're going to have a great uh, Christmas music. Um, But the same service, the exact same service, is going to be on Christmas Eve, which I think is Tuesday this year. So Christmas Eve is at 7 o'clock, a 7 o'clock service on Christmas Eve. So if you prefer the Christmas Eve service, you can be a part of that. If you come to both, you're going to hear the same message and same music. So maybe you needed it really bad. So that's great. So, But just want to let you know ahead of time, say, hey, he's preaching the same message. I heard that. But that's going to be the same one. So uh, we're in uh, chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. Uh, and uh, verse 5 and through 14, and we're looking at a brand new king. Uh, this is why this book is called, why I call First Samuel about transitions, because this is a transitional point where Israel has their very first king, the way we had George Washington as our first president. This is a, for them as a nation, this is their first king that they had. So they've transitioned from one form of government to another form. And uh, so this is a big thing. And so we catch the story today uh, after uh, Saul has already become king and we see uh, how he begins to fumble the ball almost immediately. Uh, He turns out to be a bad king and makes a lot of mistakes and uh, is replaced by David who becomes Israel's greatest king. So 1 Samuel chapter 13 uh, verses 5 through 14 and we'll look at some uh, great principles in the story. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, that was his capital, Um, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops who were with him quaking with fear, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul men began to scatter. So he said, bring me a burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings just as he had finished making the offering. Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. 
You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him a ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So here's uh, this first story in um, Samuel's uh, and Saul's interaction. And we find that Saul begins to fumble the ball as a king right from the beginning. But uh, Israel has made uh, Saul king uh, based on uh, sort of shallow uh, appearances. One of the things we know about Saul from what the uh, text says, not this text, but an earlier text, uh, it says that they chose Saul uh, because of how he looked. Uh, He was taller than any other leader in all of Israel, any other person in Israel. Uh, He stood heads and shoulders above everybody. And it also says that he was handsome. There was no one more handsome than Saul uh, in uh, in all the land. And he came from a family of standing. So basically, uh, Saul's credentials are he's rich. he, He has a great family heritage. He's extremely tall. And he's very handsome. And so the Israelites are taken with him as they see him. Uh, he's incredibly, uh, he's a, uh, just a very impressive person when you would see him. And so they base their uh, decision to have Saul as their king based on sort of shallow uh, opinion of what he looks like. And so that's an incredible and principle. Sometimes that we should remember that greatness is not always connected with appearance. Uh, we as Americans, we place a lot of value on how somebody looks, that they look good. Uh, and we all want to look good. We're all trying to get in shape. We're at the gym and we're trying to look as good as we can. But it's a high value in our culture, how we look. But looks don't always translate into great leadership. And in this case, uh, it didn't. You know, Saul was a handsome guy. But he didn't really translate into being a good leader or an effective leader. So we have to kind of look at that principle. There's a principle in that, in that story that we need to kind of look deeper. When we're, when we, when we're choosing someone for, for anything, we need to look a little deeper than just how they appear, their charisma. We need to think about their character and all that. We need to think about what kind of person they are. You know, I think about, uh, you know, in terms of uh, dating and when people choose a spouse in our culture, you know, we're heavy heavy on how people look you know we want uh you know want want the you know the person to look good and all that and that's all great i mean you know obviously attraction has a really important uh important part of the whole you know dating process and marriage and all that looking good and all that uh i remember reading about martin luther martin luther he married uh Catherine, uh, uh, I can't remember her last name, but she was a kind of a portly woman, not very, uh, uh, very, very appealing woman. They had such a great marriage and had a lot of kids and all that. So sometimes you think about, you know, the appearance. What, what appearance? Would have, we place maybe too much value on that, and we get we get carried away with that. I, I remember counseling a. A guy one time, he had a very, very stunning wife. She was beautiful. They were just fighting all the time, been married a couple years. And uh, she criticized him about everything. And she, it was just a bad, a bad marriage. And it just wasn't healthy and all that. And, and she was just beautiful. And he said to me, he said, I married her because she was so beautiful. And I learned something from that counseling session. I learned that mean trumps 
pretty every time. Mean trumps pretty every time. You know, she was mean as a rattlesnake, and he wasn't happy. So you want to, if you're choosing a, a spouse, you want to make sure that, you know, you want, you want somebody that you're attracted to, but you want to make sure that they've got character, that they're sweet, that they're nice, that they've got all that going for them and all that. Irma Bombeck told her daughter, she said, you know, when you're looking for a husband, maybe you don't want to go down to the gym to find the, the, you know, the man that's all buffed. What you really want is a man that can fix the toilet on Sunday afternoon. That's what she said. So uh, you want to make sure that you think about the deeper issues there. So uh, anyhow, that's an that's important, important principle to think about. When you think about uh, our great leaders of our country, our greatest leader uh, that we've ever had, in my opinion, was, was Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States. I have uh, pictures of Lincoln all over my office at home. I loved Lincoln. I've read so many books about Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln, uh, by most uh, estimations, was not considered a handsome man. Uh, he was uh, not very, very handsome, and uh, he was 6'4", very tall guy, uh, but he, uh, you know, one day a lady was looking at uh, Lincoln, and she uh, looked at him, and she was just kind of staring at him, and she said to him, she said, you're the, you're the most unattractive person I've ever seen in my life. And Lincoln said, well, I can't help it. I can't do anything about it. And she said, well, you could have stayed home. And uh, that's what, uh, what she said to him. Lincoln would start out some of his speeches with, uh, you know, it's the only face I have, so this is the one I bring, you know. When he was running for election in 1860, a little girl named Gracie Bell wrote him a letter and said, you know, I think you would look better if you grew a beard. And so Lincoln had never had a beard until 1860, and then this little girl said, you should grow a beard to make you look a little bit better. So he grew a beard. So he wasn't very attractive, but he was a great, great leader. So say this with me, greatness and attraction don't always go together. So that's, uh, that's one of the mistakes that they made here uh, is they based it basically on looks. And he was a tall man. Uh, there's great studies about, uh, you know, it says that Saul was uh, head and shoulders above every other person uh, in all of Israel. There's a lot of studies that, that correlate uh, a person's height with their, with their influence uh, in culture and uh, how effective they are at persuasiveness. And so we tend to choose leaders that are tall. We tend to choose leaders that are tall. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was 6'4". Most of the presidents are over six feet tall. Interesting you know, thing, Danny DeVito will probably never be president, more than likely. Um, but uh, did you know, I don't know if you ever saw uh, Braveheart. How many ever watched Braveheart? That's one of the best movies ever made. Uh, William Wallace in that uh, movie is portrayed by Mel Gibson. But did you know that, that, uh, that William Wallace in real life was six foot seven inches tall? Six foot seven inches tall. Uh, Mel Gibson, five feet nine inches tall. A little bit of casting issue there. So, but anyhow, that's interesting. So, so they they made that choice. They chose uh, chose Saul based on the appearance. And uh, when the second king is chosen, uh, when Samuel goes to anoint the second king, uh, David, he goes to the house of Jesse. Uh, house of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons, and when uh, Samuel the prophet shows up, he sees Eliab, the oldest uh, son in the family. He's tall and he's handsome, and the uh, prophet Samuel is spoken to by the Lord. The Lord corrects uh, Samuel. He said, Samuel, don't look on the outward appearance. Don't look on the outward appearance because man looks at the heart. Don't look on the outward appearance or his height, it says. Uh, and, uh, and then he said, uh, make sure that you look at it the way the Lord looks at it. The Lord looks at his heart. So in the story, we see this, uh, the story we read today, we see this uh, situation brewing where uh, the uh, Philistines are gathered 
coming against the Israelite army. They're coming against them. And they had 3,000 chariots and uh, two charioteers for, per chariot. So they got 6,000 charioteers. They've got uh, infantry that's just uh, very numerous. And the uh, Israelites have only about 3,000 men at this point. And it says that when they saw the army of the Philistines around them, they began to quake with fear. They began to quake with fear. Uh, and they were incredibly intimidated by this uh, Philistine army that was headed uh, toward them. And so Saul, when he saw his army scattering, because basically they were waiting for a sacrifice, they sort of uh, uh, believed that before they went into a, sac- uh, went into an, uh, a battle, they wanted the priest to make a sacrifice to give them confidence. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that before they fought the Philistines in chapter 7, uh, Samuel offered a sacrifice. And so they're waiting for the sacrifice. It will give them confidence. They feel like they've got to have a sacrifice before they can go into battle. And so Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. He's in another place called Ramah. And so he doesn't show up uh, on the seventh day at the time that Saul thinks he should. And so Saul feels compelled to offer a sacrifice himself. But the problem with that is, is that Saul is a king. He's not a, he's not a priest. And the priests are the ones that are supposed to offer the sacrifice. The king has other responsibilities. So what Saul does is Saul steps out of his realm and he begins to do something that he's not called to do. He begins to uh, enter into an arrangement and do something that is not his forte. This is not what he is called to do. And so he switches uh, into doing what a priest would do instead of waiting for the priest to come He steps in and he tries to do what the priest is doing. Now, this is an incredible lesson. The lesson is, is that for us to succeed in life, we need to stay in our realm. We need to do what God has called us to do, not to step in and do something that somebody else is called to do uh, and put on somebody else's ministry. We need to stay in our particular realm and do what we're called to do. We have a big thing we say here at Bayshore with our staff, and it's, uh, we say simply, stay in your lane. If you ever see an Olympic swimming pool, uh, Olympic swimming pool uh, has different lanes that the, that the swimmers swim in. This is a theme we have on our staff here, that everybody should stay in their lane. Now, of course, when there's a big project, we all jump in, we help each other. But basically, when you're leading a department, uh, you stay in your lane. You take care of your department. You take care of what you are, are supposed to be taking care of. You don't come over in somebody else's lane and do their job for them or tell them what to do. You stay in your lane. It's important that we stay in your lane in, in life, and very, very important. And what Saul did, Saul steps out of his lane. He's not a priest, but he steps in and he begins to do something uh, that a priest does, and so he's not in his lane anymore. And uh, in marriage, it's important that you stay in your lane, know what your lane is, know what, know what your spouse is good at, know what you're good at. For me, I am the big picture guy in our marriage, you know, uh, the next house we're going to do or the or the vacation we're going to take, or the trip. I'm always kind of like the big uh, idea guy and thinking, Karen's the manager. She's managing uh, certain things. She's the manager. She does all the details. She keeps the books and she pays the bills. That's what she does. She has her lane. I have my lane. And we kind of respect each other's lane there. Uh, When we were building our our last house, she said, my lane is inside the house and your lane is outside the house. So I got to pick out the bushes. That's what I got to do. And that worked good for us. You know, that was 
a wonderful thing. So learning to stay in your lane. Being in your lane is very important. Right now, our grandkids are living with us. And uh, you know what my lane is? My lane is I am a, I'm, I'm a dad, and I've been a dad, but I'm not, I am not the dad of those kids. I'm their granddad. I have fun with them and all that. When I see them doing stuff, it's like I refer them to the, the person in charge of their lane, and that's their dad and mom. And so staying in your lane is very, very important in life. People that are successful you know, get uh, focused on what their lane is, and they know what their lane is, and they stay in uh, their lane. We do that here at Bayshore at our church. We believe that uh, we believe in our philosophy is we hire racehorses and we let them run. Uh, we give people, we, we hire good people that are good at what they do. I don't tell Kyron how to lead worship. Uh, when we uh, interviewed Kyron, we know how good he was and, and all that, and so we let him stay in his lane and do what he's good at. And uh, I don't get in his lane. He doesn't ever call me and say, Danny, I want you to preach on this. And I don't ever say, hey, I want you to you know, wear a red shirt instead of a blue shirt. You know, uh, it's his lane, and I got my lane. And so that's a very, very important thing. I know what my job is at this church. My job is to do what I'm doing right now. This is what I'm called to do, to provide general leadership for our church and to teach the word effectively so people's lives can be changed. So people that are successful in life don't step out of their lane. They stay in their lane. Uh, when I was in uh, Bible college, I, li- I had this, uh, we went to this church, really great church in uh, Pensacola, Florida. It was sort of a charismatic church, and we went to this church, and I remember uh, the pastor said we were going to have a prophet come in, and I had never seen a prophet before. I always thought the church was a nonprofit organization. Uh, that was a little joke there, but Anyhow, so the church, this prophet came, and it was an interesting thing. You know, some of that stuff's a little weird. I'll just tell you. It's a little weird. Some of it's weird, a little squirrely. And, um, but it was, uh, I remember this guy came, and there was like a 1,000 people there for the service and for a couple nights. And uh, so Karen and I, we went up one night to get prayed for, and we were newly married, and we went up to, uh, to get prayed for. This guy named Bill Hammond was the name of the guy that was a speaker, and he prayed over people, and the Lord kind of gave him something for people. And I hadn't seen a lot of that in my life and wasn't sure about all of it. But I went up, and uh, it was like midnight because people didn't stand in line for him to pray for him. And so I went up, and he, uh, he prayed over Karen and I, and he said, he said, you know, he looked at me, and he said, big old guy, a big baritone voice. He said, he said, you know, I see you. You're standing in front of this table. And it's filled with all these weapons. There's weapons all over this table. And he said, you're so excited about all these weapons. You're so excited about all these different weapons. He said, the Lord's going to close your eyes to every weapon but one weapon. And you're going to focus on that weapon. And you're going to pick it up and you're going to use it for my glory. And that weapon is what I'm doing right now. I focus extremely focused on this part of the ministry. It's learning how to communicate to people and all that. And so that's, that's what I focus on. So that was the weapon. Interestingly, he gave Karen a little prophecy too, which I've always teased her about. Her, his prophecy to her was, uh, go with him, saith the Lord. Go with him, saith the Lord. Looked at me because, you know, I was kind of young and green behind the ears, and she wondered if she could trust me. And the prophet said, go with him, saith the Lord. So every once in a while, I'll just say to her, Go with him, saith the Lord. Go with him. That's a good thing. So anyhow, so uh, looking at what your weapon is, looking at what your, what your uh, focus is, focusing in on that which you are good at. And so that was the first violation of, of what, of what uh, Saul did. He stepped into a realm that was not his realm. He stepped into doing something that was not, he was not called to do. He was not gifted to do. And, uh, and that was the beginning of his downfall. 
you know, one of the reasons that people switch lanes sometimes is because, uh, because they don't trust other people. They don't trust other people. And, and, and if you are constantly getting into things that aren't your thing, and you're just getting into things, you're not, you're not allowing other people to grow, and you're not trusting other people. And so this is the problem with, with uh, Saul here. Saul didn't think that Samuel would keep his word. He didn't think Samuel would show up and do what he was supposed to do. And so because he didn't trust uh, Samuel, he didn't trust Samuel, uh, what happened was he stepped into Samuel's realm and tried to do something that was not in his realm to do. And so that's very, very important. I remember uh, when I was playing football, I played uh, Little League football and middle school, and I, w- I played middle linebacker, and, uh, and then I played uh, fullback on offense. And I remember when I was uh, playing uh, those roles in, in football that we had this one game where the punter didn't show up or the punter got hurt or something. And so Ron Calloway, our coach, uh, he came to me and he said, Danny, I want you to be the punter. I want you to punt for, uh, for the game. And uh, I never punted in practice. I never punted at all. But he thought I looked like a punter. So he put me in there to punt. You know, when it came up, you know, the first time we had to punt. And it was a windy day. And I remember, uh, you know, getting the snap. The, they snapped the ball to me. And I did catch the ball. I did get a successful snap. But I, my punt was the ball went, it went uh, 30 feet high straight up. And then it went 10 feet backwards. I mean, it was... It was a disaster. We actually lost yardage on the punt, and uh, it was just really, really bad thing. It wasn't something I was, I was accustomed to doing, and it wasn't, it wasn't something that was in my realm. And so when you, when you get in doing something you're not called to do or you're not anointed to do, uh, then you have that kind of effect that will happen in your life. And it basically, basically has to do with trust issues. You don't trust somebody. Uh, you don't trust somebody to do their job. You're not, you're not depending on them. Uh, and so you need to give people space so that they can entrust them to do their job and not to step into that vacuum that's there. Every time you step into a vacuum that you, you think there's something needs to be done and you're not supposed to do, the person that's supposed to do that doesn't emerge out of that vacuum. So you have to kind of like uh, make sure that you uh, give a space to that. When I played Little League Baseball... Um, I was really bad at baseball. I was pretty good at football, but I was terrible at baseball. And when I played Little League Baseball, uh, I had the lowest batting average on the team. And, uh, and I wasn't a very good fielder. Uh, and the coach put me in center field out there. I was in center field. Uh, and he probably should have put me in right field. But I, I think you know, little kids were swinging late in the ball. So I was going to right field. So he, uh, he put me in center field. And he told the right fielder and the left fielder, if they hit a ball to Tice, Make sure you run over there and try to help him. And so what happened was, you know, they, they want, I was in this one game, and the, they hit a ball to me, and it was coming right toward me. And I was pretty sure I could catch that one. It was right there, and uh, my dad had been helping me, and it was coming right to, toward me. But the left fielder, big old guy, he came over and tried to catch the ball, and he tried to catch the ball. He, he knocked me down because he was trying to catch the ball. And he did, the reason he did that is because he didn't trust me to catch the ball. So when you think about... Uh, getting in a field that's not your field, it's basically a trust issue. 
So that means when you're like, if you're hiring people for your company or whatever, you hire people you can trust, you hire racehorses and let them run, you empower people and you stay in your lane, you let them stay in their lane and things go well when you do that. That's a really, really good thing. So that's a, that's a couple of the reasons that, you know, that Saul switched his lane. But there's, that's not the, I don't think that's the crutch of, the, uh, the crutch of it. I think the real reason that uh, he, he uh, switched lanes there and he got into something he wasn't called to do had to do, with, uh, had to do with this. I think it had to do with this principle that he felt responsible to hold things together. The army was scattering. The soldiers were leaving. And he felt responsible to do something. Because the wheels were coming off. Things were falling apart. And he felt responsible to save it. He felt responsible to save the day. And this is the big uh, problem here because God had never called Saul to save the day. God had never called Saul to step in and save the kingdom, which was not his kingdom to start with. This kingdom didn't belong to Saul. This kingdom belonged to the Lord. And because the kingdom belonged to the Lord, it was the Lord's responsibility to save the kingdom, not for Saul's responsibility to save the kingdom. He was supposed to obey and listen to the voice of Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel said, wait until I get there. Instead of obeying the voice of the Lord, Saul felt compelled to save the day. And whenever you have a hyper sense of responsibility that everything depends on you and you've got to save the day, then you're not in a good place in life. You know, some people have a, have a problem with responsibility. They don't take responsibility. They don't show up for work. They don't pay their bills. You know, they don't do what they're supposed to do. We all know people like that. But most people that I know aren't like that. Most people, their problem is, is not that they are irresponsible. It's that they feel too responsible. They feel too responsible. They feel like everything depends on them. And if they don't do something, if they don't intervene, if they don't jump into the situation, if they don't improvise, then it's going to sink and it's going to go down. And that's a really bad place to be in. Sometimes, you know, you think about, I just tell you about this church. The bottom line is this church, I've been here 38 years. This church, I love this church. I love leading. I go to board meetings. I work with uh, great people. Uh, but let me tell you something. At the end of the day, this church doesn't belong to me. It's not my church. It's God's church. And if it's God's church, it's God's responsibility to save this church. It's God's responsibility. It, anything belongs to God is his responsibility. Say that with me. Anything that belongs to God is his responsibility. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord owns the earth and he owns everything on the earth. Bashor is on the earth. The Lord owns the earth and the Lord owns everything on the earth. So if the Lord owns the earth and the Lord owns what's on the earth, he owns this church and this church is ultimately his responsibility, not my responsibility. That's a paradigm shift there. 
Now, how about your business? You got in this great business. We had a wonderful businessman I talked to in the first service. We got lots of business people in our church. We have to kind of come to terms with, is the business our business? It may even have our name on it. That's nothing wrong with that. And all of that, but if our business has our name on it, nothing wrong at all with that. But let me ask you something. Is this business that you are presiding over, is this business really your business or does it belong to God ultimately? Are you steward over this business or do you own it? If you own it, then you've got to save it. But if it belongs to the Lord, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If your business is on the earth, it belongs to the Lord. And if your business is on the earth and it belongs to the Lord, ultimately, it is the Lord's business to take care of. So anything that belongs to the Lord is ultimately the Lord's responsibility to take care of. Say it with me. Anything that belongs to the Lord, it's ultimately the Lord's responsibility to take care of. Incredible principle. Incredible principle. I've got a Tacoma pickup. And a couple weeks ago, the maintenance light came on. And that really bothers me when that maintenance light comes on. Now, let me ask you a question. This is just a silly little illustration. Let me ask you a question. If I got up on that Sunday morning that the maintenance light came up on my Toyota pickup, and I said, hey, listen, I want you all to know, I want you all to know that my maintenance light came up on my uh, 2016 Toyota Tacoma pickup. Just want you to know. How many would you go? How many of you would go home and would worry about that maintenance light? How many of you wouldn't worry about it? Let me ask. You, you, how many of you would that you would not be able to sleep because that maintenance light was on? It would drive you crazy. Not a one of you because it's not your truck and it's not your responsibility to fix the truck. Anything belongs to the Lord is ultimately His responsibility to take care of. Let me. Just get a little closer here. What about your family? You got your family. You got your, your grown kids. They're shaving and they got jobs and they're, you know, doing their thing. And you got grandkids. Let me ask you a question. How many have ever worried about your kids since they've moved out of the house? And, they, you know, just worried about them and all that. And how about your grandkids? You, know, you worry about your grandkids. They're, your kids are not raising them right. You know they're not raising them right. You've got to help your kids with that. I have grandkids living with me, so I have to remember, stay in your lane, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. I'm staying in my lane. I'm doing really good, staying in my lane. got out of one time, but I'm staying in my lane, staying in my lane. You know, if, if your family, if you surrender your family, if your family's on the earth and your kids are on the earth and your children are on the earth, your children and your grandkids, they belong to the Lord. And anything that belongs to the Lord, he's ultimately responsible to take care of. So I want to be a good granddad. I want to be a good father. My son Joel, his, his birthday today, he turns 37. He's clothing in his right mind and he's doing good. And I'm just so proud of him and uh, just love him and grateful for my other son, Tim. And and their wives, not to, Tim has two wives, he just has one wife, and Joel has a wife, so just make that clear. <laughs> we aren't Mormon, but anyhow, there we go. Uh, but basically, hey, they're not, they're not, it's not my kids. They belong to the Lord. They belong to the Lord. 
I don't have to, you know, I don't jump into everything. I don't get it. It's not my job. It is not my responsibility. I'm not stepping in to do something I'm not called to do. Because if I step into this, it tells me that it's, I believe that I am responsible and that the kingdom belongs to me and it's up to me. The kingdom is going to fall if I don't do something. And so Samuel stepped over here and he got involved because he felt like it was his responsibility to save the kingdom. And it was not his responsibility to save the kingdom because it was not his kingdom to start with. And if it's not his kingdom to start with, it wasn't his responsibility to save the kingdom. You never have to save anything that does not belong to you. It's so liberating, such a liberating principle. Most people have trouble not with being responsible. We have trouble inside with being too responsible. That we've got to fix it. We've got to save it. Saul said, I got to do something. I got to make an offering. I got I to make a burnt offering. If I don't do this, this whole thing is going to come apart. Instead of standing still and trusting God because it wasn't his kingdom to start with, it was God's kingdom. Who knows what God would have done in that situation when Samuel came up and made that offering? He just had to wait. You know what? You know what? Trusting God really translates into doing sometimes. Trusting God translates into doing nothing sometimes. Trusting means sometimes doing nothing. I had a lady call me one Sunday afternoon, doesn't come to Bayshore. She's a friend of mine in the community. She called me, and a very successful business lady. She called me and she said, she was just distraught. She has a son in California. He was on drugs, and he was, she could, they couldn't find him. They didn't know where he was. And uh, she had another son that had issues, and she was just frantic. And uh, so I listened to her, talked to her, counseled her a little bit. And then I said to her, I said, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to give you grace to do nothing. She didn't like that prayer. She, she knew I was right because she, she, wanted, she wanted to get her toolbox out. She wanted to get on the airplane, fly over there. She, she's already done that 20 times. Why do that again? Wasn't her job to save the situation. She had to put that in the hands of a f sovereign God. And I said, Lord, give my dear friend the grace to do nothing. And Saul was supposed to stand still and do nothing. Because it wasn't his kingdom. It wasn't his responsibility. And anytime we take something that is not our responsibility, it is a disaster. Every time. So my best friend uh, in high school was Sammy Fisher. You met Sammy this summer. I think he came to preach. And Sammy was my best friend in high school. Still very, very good friends. We just talk probably every other week. He's in Texas, and we talk, and we're friends. I preach for him a couple times a year. Sammy grew up on Front Street in Seaford, Delaware. If you know Seaford, Front Street was not the best part of town. That's where Sammy grew up on Front Street. And uh, 
Sammy had a brother, a little brother, that was about four years younger than he was. And Sammy's brother had an enlarged heart. His name was Johnny. And Sammy, Sammy's brother had this enlarged heart. He had some other defect with his heart. It was a congenital thing. He was born that way. And uh, Sammy's brother was just very, very weak and very ill. And Sammy said one day he and Johnny were pray, playing outside, and he had gone to the Sammy had gone to one end of the front street to play with some other guys, and Johnny was the other end of the front street. And so Sammy came home, came in the back door. His mom and dad are in the kitchen, and takes off his beanie, sets it down on there, and he's in the kitchen getting something to eat out of the refrigerator. And Johnny comes in a few minutes later, and Johnny comes in, and his lips are blue or purple. Actually, Sammy said they were purple. He wasn't getting enough oxygen. And he said, his mom and dad turned to him and said, Sammy, why weren't you taking care of him? Why weren't you taking care of him? And Sammy said that his mom and dad didn't even realize that he was at one end of Front Street and his Johnny was at the other Front Street. They weren't even together. But he said, Sammy, he, Sammy said, when his mom and dad said that to him, it, it put something in his heart that he felt responsible for everything. Growing up, when, when Sammy was in high school, his brother slept on one bed on one side of his room and Sammy on the other side. And Sammy said, I would wake up in the night, I would stand over my brother to make sure he was breathing. I'd stand up and make sure he was breathing, looking at him. And he said, you know, I grew up with that. And when I got in ministry and when I got in adult life, Everything I encountered, I felt I was responsible for. And he said, I was frustrated and I was stressed and I was anxious all the time. And anytime anybody left the church or something wrong with the church, I felt it was my responsibility. I'd done something wrong. I'd said something. And he had this overwhelming sense of being too responsible. And Sammy said he had to go to a Christian counselor. A spirit-filled Christian counselor at Gateway Church in Dallas, Texas, and they prayed over him and helped him to see that root of where that came from, that he was over-responsible. And Sammy felt freedom. He found freedom from that. Sometimes we, you know, hey, we'd do anything for our kids, do anything for our family, do anything for uh, our people we want to help all about that think that's wonderful we need to let the lord lead us and all that but in our heart of hearts in our in our spirit in our mind we need to have this sense of anything that belongs to the lord is ultimately his responsibility so you, if if you're feeling like somebody is your responsibility then you haven't yet surrendered them to the lord If you're feeling like, man, if I don't do something, if I don't go make a sacrifice, if I don't jump over there and do something, this thing is going to fall apart. That is, that Saul was rebuked for that because it was not faith to act. It was, it was, it was fear that made him act. It was possessing something that wasn't his that made him act. Corey Tin Boone says, make sure that everything you have in your life 
everything you have in your life, you hold in a hand that's loose just in case God wants it. Say this with me. Anything I think I own, I have to take care of. And say this with me. When the Lord owns something, it's ultimately his responsibility to take care of it. This story is about Saul not knowing whose kingdom it was. It was God's kingdom. It was not his responsibility to save. Back in the, uh, back in the days of Greek mythology, there was a famous Greek god that you will know and recognize as the Greek god uh, Atlas. Atlas was, um, was, went to war. He was a titan god, and he went to war against the Olympians, which was uh, presided over by Zeus. And they went to war, and Atlas led the titan gods against the Olympian gods. And Zeus, of course, defeated Atlas. And Atlas's curse was, was for the rest of his life, for the rest of his existence, he would have the world on his shoulders and the heavens, and he would bear them up every day, every night, every month, every year, he would hold up the world on his shoulders. It was a curse. It was a curse from Zeus. And it's so easy for us to put ourselves under a curse when we make ourselves responsible for the whole world. Quote this with me, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. One more time, a little louder. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Would you lift your hands right now? The earth is the Lord's. The earth's not on your shoulders. And everything in this earth is not on your shoulders. You do your best. You do your, you listen to the Lord. You're obedient. You follow the Lord. But you're not ultimately responsible. This, that's what it means to trust God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord. Trust means to do nothing sometimes. When you're jumping in trying to fix it, you're not trusting Father, just help us. Give us grace to trust you. Help us to know the kingdom is not ours. We don't have to make a sacrifice. We don't have to do things to make things not fall apart. It's not on our shoulders. It's on your shoulders, Lord. Anything you own, you're responsible for, and you own it all. So you're responsible for it. Just right now, whatever it is, maybe it's a... Maybe it's a situation at work. Maybe it's something, some person in your life that you can't fix. You can't make it right. Maybe it's a family thing you're worried about. Just put that before the Lord right now. Hey, listen, it's not your job. It's not your job. Somebody gave me a t-shirt one time and the t-shirt said, it's my favorite t-shirt. It says, two things I know. There is a God and I'm not him. So right now, just resign from me and God. Just say, Lord, I'm not God. I am not responsible ultimately. I give that to you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.
Jesus' name, amen and amen, amen.